Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with my co-host, Antonio D. Sorrento of Vimo Education, and we're interviewing Dave Gerard of Upstart. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Dave, so know that Upstart is absolutely crushing it in, in lending. We're here today to talk about ISAs. Perhaps you can give an introduction to what Upstart is today, and then talk about how that idea sort of evolved and how you initially pursued what you want Upstart to be you know, many years ago. Sure. Today, Upstart is a consumer lending platform. So we make unsecured personal loans to individuals and, uh, you know, very shortly other types of products as well. What is unique about us is we use fairly sophisticated statistical models, machine learning type of models with pretty advanced use of alternative data to price credit. And we've built a lot of automation into the process as well. So it's a taking a very uh, traditional business lending and applying very modern data science and computer science to the problem of originating credit. And that's what we look like today. What did you look like when you first set out to build Upstart? I left Google in 2012 to found Upstart. And it back then was based on the notion of uh, allowing somebody to access capital today by, in effect, sharing some fraction of their earning potential from the future. It was really a, a derivative or an alternative to a loan. And as Tonio knows well, not ever entirely clear, at least at the time, whether it was a loan or not from a legal perspective. But the idea generally that a lot of people, their, their most valuable asset is actually their future earning potential. And that earning, that potential is all locked up and unavailable to them. So how could we create a market of sorts that would allow somebody to tap into you know, future earning potential and pull some of that income forward? That was the fundamental notion of Upstart back in 2012. And what inspired this idea initially? What sort of philosophy or what, what sort of, how did you get the idea? And was it a new idea at the time? Or? It was really an idea spawned just by conversations of, with people sort of in the post-college years who were, I'd just say, foregoing entrepreneurial paths because of the presence of student debt, uh, making choices in their lives that you know, felt to me suboptimal for the very real uh, challenge of servicing student debt that they had built up over the years and whether there couldn't be a way to finance that debt in an alternative way uh, and give people a chance to you know, take on more risk and, and, and do startups and things like that in their, in their 20s. So that was kind of the original motivation was, was sort of the transference from a traditional debt instrument into something that would provide more flexibility on behalf of the individual. When you first started Upstart, what was sort of the initial use case you were focused on for ISAs and where did you see yourself going from there? Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely saw it as, a, as I said, first of all, I'd say the, the class of people we were interested in were entrepreneurs or potential entrepreneurs who were sort of post-college in that age when a lot of people don't have a lot of other obligations in their lives and they can take on risk, but a huge fraction of them, of course, have student debt and that can be prohibitive for doing the kinds of things you might want to do in your 20s. So that was sort of the sweet spot was people in that demographic who have entrepreneurial bent to their personality, but for financial reasons, felt like it was a challenge. And we also envisioned it as a, as a marketplace of sorts. So the money wasn't coming from us, but was coming from investors who were essentially were people who would put money toward 
this amount of money you're collecting and, and would serve as a, a sort of a board of directors for you in terms of having a real self-interest in helping you succeed and would be available to you. And so when we thought of it, we, I remember, you know, saying it's sort of like 50% Kickstarter, 50% lending club, but really with a marketplace where, where the money was coming from people with faces and names that you could communicate with and would have some interest in helping you succeed. Did you ever think that instead of being, instead of being maybe AngelList for AngelList was an necessarily around or big at this time, but angels for people maybe being like Sequoia for like in terms of doing all the investing yourself? Yeah. You know, when I, I met my co-founder, Paul Gu, he was in New York working on a similar idea. He was a Peter Thiel 20 under 20 sort of first class of that. So he was working on this idea and he envisioned it more like a hedge fund where all the money would just come out of an institutional fund. I had a sort of different notion of more of a marketplace I viewed it as an auction. So somebody would sort of put up, you know, one or 2% of their future income in a sort of auction format. And he had more of a vision of a fixed price thing where you would actually calculate the price of the instrument. And in effect, we took my marketplace, we took his fixed price notion. And and what we ended up with was sort of a blend of Paul's idea and my idea uh, into what became Upstart. Do either of you have a framework for thinking about when something should be opened up to a marketplace versus capitalized, you know, taken advantage of all by like proprietarily, if, if that makes sense in that example or others? I, I don't know if I have a permanent framework for it, but I mean, marketplaces are good when I think buyers and sellers can, can arrive at a, a transactional price and, and, and it has, you know, the usual things where like the thing that make a, make a marketplace interesting is it's just when there's a lot of volume goes through it because buyers and sellers can find each other and et cetera. And, you know, I definitely envisioned that. I, I really, probably more than, than Paul, was, was enamored with the idea that these people giving money could actually help you as well. There was this alignment of interest. Paul, you know, probably much younger than me, but perhaps infinitely wiser, thought that was unnecessary overhead and a simple financial transaction might be a more, a more straightforward model. And of course, we'll never know, you know, which answer was right. Right. So what was the response like? You, know, you launched this idea. It's a pretty radical idea. You know, and how, how did investors look at it? How did entrepreneurs look at it? How did the public look at it? What was the response like? Well, I'll say one thing is we got the most crazy amount of press without even trying because it was just such a, an out there idea. I mean, this goes back to sort of University of Chicago, you know, School of Economics. And, you know, this idea of what was referred to as, as Tonio knows as a human capital contract at some point was such an awful name that we kind of invented the name uh, income share agreement. And even the, the few companies that were trying to do this simultaneously sort of debated what that name should be. So, yeah, I mean, we, the press reaction was crazy. I mean, it was such an awesome story, both good and bad. I mean, they'd just say, wow, people are selling off their futures. This is like some sort of crazy uh, game out there. And, and it was, you know, a compelling story. So we got a lot of real, I just call them zealots, people that loved the idea that showed up and wanted to do this on both sides of the market, meaning both investors and, and people looking to raise money and, and sell some share of their earnings. And, you know, so we saw some very nice early success. I mean, we were always placing bets on how fast and how big this could go, but there were definitely zealots who would come in and, and want to do this and, and we were kind of building the thing as we went, meaning like it literally was assembling the website and the, and the process week by week. Saw some great early success, enormous amount of traffic just because of the coverage we got. It didn't mean we were a successful business. It just meant that it was an interesting story to tell. and People wanted to learn about it. And we learned over time that that does not translate necessarily to a successful business. 
Yeah. So the, you know, we, we start out with Upstart, you know, pursuing this idea. We fast forward now, Upstart's crushing and lending. Fill out the, fill out the gaps. Like you, you launched, what did you learn sort of the first year? What ended up, what, you know, what didn't grow maybe the way you wanted it to, or what did you guys learn from that experience? Yeah, I mean, we because we had a two-sided market, we really needed participants on both sides. And, you know, that was people that were interested in raising money and, and, and selling some fraction of their income on one side and on the other, of course, investors. And let me just speak to separately because they're, of course, distinct and different. On, on the kind of borrower, what we call the upstart side at the time, we started out with a 10-year agreement. It basically means you would, if you wanted to raise $25,000, we would run some math and tell you what fraction of your income you would need to you know, kick back into this network regularly for, the, for 10 years. And if you took a year off, it could add a year, et cetera. So we tried to keep things simple, but invariably, you know, to try to cover all the corner cases, it created something that got increasingly complicated over time. And also 10 years to someone who's you know, 24, 25 sounds like a heck of a long time. We, so, so we later added a five-year product to sort of mitigate that of someone who just wants a smaller amount of money. Five years sounds a lot more palatable than 10. You begin to question whether you don't have some sort of um, moral hazard or, or like thing where, where somebody says, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going uh, to travel the world for the next two years and I'm going to hide that. And so you have all sorts of questions of moral hazard or, or adverse election, et cetera, in the model. So that was the borrower side or the upstart side. Generally speaking, the biggest challenge there is just people didn't know how to evaluate it, whether it was a good deal, whether it was a bad deal, whether it was legal, whether it was not legal. We didn't have 100% clear answers on any of these things. Um, and ultimately, I think a lot of people felt, you know, they were betting against themselves, you know, because if I do really well, I pay what amounts to an effectively very high interest rate. If I don't do well, uh, that's great. I don't have to pay that much. But that, you know, put that together, it means you're kind of betting against yourself, which doesn't necessarily feel right. The other side of the market, the investors, there was essentially a, a lack of clarity. You know, was this a social, socially positive thing that we're just doing and, and we don't really care if we get the money back? Uh, you know, um, is it something like a Kiva? Or is this really kind of a sort of, pure financial instrument I should be excited about. And if the latter, you know, we really needed a long time to prove that we were going to return the yields or the amounts we aimed to, to, to do so. So, you know, there was just no ability to prove on any short and any reasonable time frame that this actually works from a financial perspective, from an investor's perspective. And so we were really leaning on people who just found it compelling and were willing to put some money at risk because it probably was not huge money to them and they found it to be compelling as an idea. But we were a long way from um, being able to really give concrete proof. We, we also spent quite a bit of time pursuing institutional dollars, really with the idea that we'd like to have the, the individual funding front and center, but it could be backed or multiplied by you know, institutional dollars behind it that helped us scale more quickly. You know, that obviously could be good too. You know, we had a few term sheets, things like that, that never ended up coming to fruition. So for the most part, it was you know, funded by individuals through the, the time we did it. It, it. it went on for, you know, we, we sort of went open for business, if you will, in August of 2012. We had done a little pilot that we put together offline with Google Docs and, and legal documents. So when we announced the company in August 2012, there were a bunch of people funded and, and there were a bunch of people that had provided the funding. So notionally, it, we took the cover off this thing and showed it to the world. It looked interesting. And then for the next year, you know, we kept what I like to call turning the nerd knobs. 
to try to make the thing work, you know, adding the five-year instrument, tweaking some of the terms a bit here and there to try to appeal to both investors and to the upstarts. There was always a concern of, is it uncapped? You know, what if I become an ex-Mark Zuckerberg? And so, you know, we introduced the notions of caps of different flavors and, and sort of constantly trying to create a product that appealed to both sides of the market. And, you know, for us, at least, ultimately, it just never scaled enough. Uh, the decision process for an applicant was, was so long that ultimately a lot of them would put a lot of work in. We would put, be putting, on, you know, putting work in with them, and they would at the last minute withdraw and just say, I'm just not sure about this, or my uncle told me he thinks it's illegal, or my friend said this is crazy. So, you know, ultimately, we just had a lot of fits and starts in ways that it was not really scaling the way we had hoped and expected it to. Yeah, there's so many things there to unpack. One is the betting against themselves part. Why don't people feel that when they start a company and they give up equity in their company? You know, people take equity investment instead of debt investment in their companies all the time and they give up, you know, millions and millions of dollars or billions of dollars if they're they're super successful. Why do you think that's so different? Uh, Mostly because they don't have any other choice. I mean, no, no one gives a loan to a company without likelihood of being able to pay it back where, you know, Early stage equity investors, they're all about, you know, high risk and high loss. Uh, so, you know, yeah, I mean, it's not really, I, I don't really equate the two. I, I think that equity financing of a company, you know, makes perfect, make, makes perfect sense, particularly when debt financing is not realistically available to you. How many people on your uh, platform received equity or received investment? We, we funded about 150 people. over the year or so that we were running this program. And it was a total of about, I think, $2.7 million uh, split amongst all of them in terms of, you know, the total amount of capital raised during that time. Well, an interesting thing, Eric, and Dave, you may not know this, but the head of the income share agreement business at Nemo that faces alternative education, accelerated learning providers like General Assembly, was one of Dave's upstarts. So Shanaz Chowdhury, here at BMO, got her start in ISAs as an upstart. Wow. Yeah, I should say there's been several upstarts that have done fairly phenomenal things. I was at a Goldman Sachs conference last a couple of weeks ago, and it was for the top 100 entrepreneurs. And one of the women, I think it's Trina Spear, who had been one of our early upstarts, is the CEO or, or co-founder of this apparel company called Figs that was at this event. So she, she, a phenomenally successful company she created in Southern California with a co-founder. There's another woman, Jewel Burks, who has started a, a company called Part Picks, which is just a really super interesting kind of supply chain related uh, company. There's a guy that created a, a, a medical product off of Google Glass. So there are actually some awesome success stories. And, you know, that's probably for me the the most rewarding part of all of it is, is it actually, you know, whether, whether we directly helped or not, I, I can't obviously answer that and, and wouldn't really, you know, try to claim that. But to me, it's just to see that some of the people really did have some, you know, exceptional places they landed after, you know, after they uh, worked with us. What type, on the investing side, what type of data w- would people, could people have seen or, or gotten that would have made them more comfortable making investment decisions than people? You know, we we showed what was, you know, not terribly dissimilar to a LinkedIn profile in terms of, you know, your school and your your work history and, you know, some sort of statement of who you are and what you want to do, kind of a personal statement. But there there wasn't, you know, a, a lot behind, you know, beyond that. It wasn't, I don't think, realistic for people to try to understand, you know, what this person was likely to earn and 
whether this would be worth it, which is why Paul's model, my co-founder's model of essentially saying, look, we're going to build a model that's going to predict somebody's statistically likely earnings over the next decade. And we're going to use that along with the kind of hurdle rate to decide, you know, how much money equates to what fraction of income. And so that was sort of one of the more interesting and genius things that, you know, my co-founder had done. And that at least made the experience for either the borrower or the investor far simpler because all we had to know is say, here's the price. Are, are you in or not? On both sides, and and so that that was a I would say that was a smart decision, and and, and I don't take personal credit for it, but not necessarily enough to win the day in the end. But but one of the things I think that we that we did right. The other competitors at the time did they uh, have similar fates? Did they figure out or, or any any anything that you guys took, or what was the state of other other people at the time? That question is probably best answered by Tonio because he worked for one of them. I did, Eric. Fair, Dave. I mean. I was there when Dave named income share agreements, income share agreements. I think Upstart was leading the people in the ISA space at the time. Everybody was watching to see what Upstart was doing. I think they tried to take what Upstart did and make it, a number of other businesses tried to take what Upstart did, even since Upstart, not even concurrently, or contemporaneously, saw what Upstart did and and tried to uh, mimic that, but what they couldn't see from the outside was how hard it was for Upstart to be doing it. You know, you can see that the human capital in Upstart has turned into this really successful business as a lending platform without the constraints of having to work in income share agreements. So people with maybe a lesser team or a lesser focus had no hope of recreating Upstart success in it. Well, it's very, it's very kind, Tonio, but really we were all just kind of uh, feeling around in the dark, trying to see if there was a business there with slightly different takes on things. And there was only a couple of companies. And then, you know, there was some history of it. There was a uh, a guy, Tonio may remember his name, who was a, a professional gambler, I think, who had created some of these contracts and gotten friends to sign them. So there was all sorts of, if you do enough internet searches, My Rich Uncle was a company founded on the concept of of student loans that you would pay back as a fraction of income. So there was some history of it, but nobody had really put it all together and brought it to market well. And, you know, we, we, we naturally thought we could be the first to do that. And, uh, you know, ultimately, at least the, the approach we took and the part of the market we targeted just wasn't ready for what we wanted to do. Yeah. It is interesting. This is sort of the, the idea that, that won't die, right? You know, I've started as, as initially conceived, you know, David, I think one of the reasons why you're doing this podcast is to point the dozens or even hundreds of people that, that have asked you over the years, point them to, <laughs> to, to somewhere so you can, they can hear your story and how you pursued it and, and what the opportunities are. But what I'm, what I'm, what I'm curious about is, is, is the upstart model as you initially conceived it, was it right just ahead of its time? And if so, what are sort of the bottlenecks or barriers that need to be removed for it to exist in sort of a consumer, you know, mainstream angle? Well, I, I think um, a lot of the sort of constructs behind it and, and how we look on a whiteboard and whether that money makes sense and the price for it, you know, all that can be sorted out. I mean, generally speaking, creating liquidity where there's no liquidity is generally is a good thing, right? And with the proper controls and oversight, there's absolutely no reason why some transfer of wealth from your future to your present is something that couldn't add value to society in some way. So, so to me, the basic construct is still sound and has a lot of potential. The question really is where does it start where it makes sense to start? And I think, you know, 
Antonio and his company are, are, are onto it. When you are either begin, about to start college or you're in college, and your choice is really at that time, take on significant student debt or take on an instrument that you know, mitigates the risk that comes with student debt and with an income share agreement style funding of higher education, you know, I think there's really some value there. I think that that's a place where I don't feel like I'm actually betting against myself in some sense. I don't, I don't feel like I'm being taken advantage of. I feel like I'm going to get a college degree and I'm not going to have this burden of debt that's going to crush me. And I also with the money coming, not from some wealthy individual, but from an institution who I also got my degree from, feels a lot better to me. It feels like you you just kind of, it's valid because it's coming from, you know, a named university. They hopefully, if they're doing it in a smart way, you know, your interests are aligned. So there's just a lot of good reasons why that's a cleaner and safer starting point than what we did, which was out, out in the wild of the consumer, you know, marketplace with investors and, and individuals, you know, coming to the table together. That, that's just, to me, a much harder problem to solve. So we, we really started in a hard place. I think that what Tony and his company are doing is a more realistic starting point. And having said that, you know, some number of years from now, I don't know how many, when it's really well established uh, as an alternative to fund higher education, of course, all other, uses, other, other use cases or other potentials for that form of financing, I think will become unlocked over time. But the regulation will be ready for it. People will have it. It'll, it won't sound as nutty as it did when we announced it in 2012. And I think it will be a viable form of finance for certain you know, types of use cases. And uh, as I said, you know, more liquidity is good. So, so I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be successful and more successful over time. Thanks for saying that about Demo, Dave. I, I would add to what Dave said that competing for consumers with a financial instrument, income, an income share agreement, and offering in competition alone, that's a hard, that's hard competition. Loans are pretty efficient and income share agreements are pretty new and have some disadvantages that make them costly today. And so the, the entry point we've chosen isn't even as much choose between a loan and an income share agreement for higher education. It is when you are choosing a school, if you care about outcomes, you should choose one that does income share agreements. And if students use this to choose a school, then the school, there's enough value there for the school to basically subsidize for students what would otherwise be maybe a less good deal than a loan. We can make it a better deal than a loan, but it takes schools as partners. And we do hope that what we're doing creates a future where income share agreements are easy and inexpensive. And so people can build alternatives to other financial products, other alternatives to personal loans, alternatives to student loans that are really competitive based on the learnings and the infrastructure we built serving colleges. So, uh, but I think the key insight was we can't win right now helping people choose between income share agreements and loans and also meet their capital needs. Whereas we can win if we help them choose between schools. Yeah. Let's say that we're five years out, we're 10 years out. Vimo has won and it's one bit. It succeeded in its vision. Every college is, you know, is using Vimo. And now we're at the place that, Dave just talked about where, hey, ISAs have some mainstream have mainstream recognition, and we're able to, you know, create <laughs> the future that that FDR wanted to create initially. Can you paint a vision of like what then? Like how would how would you go to market then? Like what could you envision like being unlocked that we haven't we haven't seen or haven't discussed? What 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 happens in a world in which 
Vimo's vision plays out exactly as, as you imagine. Tony. Let's uh, it sounds like more for me. I would say, first of all, people are the best colleges are getting the most students for the least money. So people are choosing schools that are best for them. And that's a huge positive benefit for society. The income share agreement market stepping away from college use cases is, is going to look more like the lending market today, where you don't just say, I'm going to start a lending business. You start a business very focused in a particular customer in lending with a particular capital source and a particular specialty. And you build and scale in that and perhaps expand. But, uh, you know, today what we see is people saying they do income share agreements. And that's, that's not, nobody has an income share agreement problem. They have some other problem. You know, they, they want to pay for college or they want to choose a college. Or they want to purchase a home or a car. They want to relocate to take a new job. And I think we'll be in a place where people can build really focused businesses and succeed the way, the way they do today in lending. Dave, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I, I think uh, Tony is right. I, I, I think that as a form of financing, it will have a place far beyond higher education, though, you know, where it competes well and where it makes sense. Uh, it has some notions that are equity-like, sort of equity-like investment in an individual. And of course, it doesn't imply ownership the way equity does, but it implies kind of sharing of upside and downside the way equity does. And, you know, that might imply it, it's sort of a, a form of financing, again, for entrepreneurs, people who may or may not be successful in what they do. And that's why debt financing doesn't work well to start most businesses that aren't obvious cash flow businesses. And, and so sort of a, a, a derivative equity like financing for people has a lot of potential. And whether you take that equity financing to put it into educating yourself or whether you do it to start a business, uh, explore an area, what have you, you know, I, I, I think there's just an obvious opportunity for that. But I do agree with, with Tony that I'm not sure a just generalized product will, will be what makes sense. It will be one targeted towards solving a particular problem. Well, I would add one other thing to that, Eric, which is it won't be the province of startups. So today, you know, you don't have mature businesses adding an income share agreement line or an income share agreement product alongside their other offerings to customers. But if you work, if you do the work to get a customer to your site, if you're upstart, you, you should try to convert them. And if your loan product isn't perfect for everybody, an income share agreement product, even if it's not, if the take up rate on that is lower than the loan take up rate, offered alongside a loan might help a, a business like Upstart succeed even more for its customers. And so I, Dave, Dave could speak to his company, but I think that ISAs will have made it when you don't have to be an ISA business just to do one. In five years from now, someone comes up, you know, Vimo's already a big thing. If someone comes up to you and says, either of you and says, I'm building the next Kickstarter for people. I'm focused on a, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about which use case makes the most sense. Uh, maybe Dave, start with you. What sort of advice would you give to that entrepreneur, or what's your sort of request for, like, where do you want to see people experiment or innovate as it relates to ISAs? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I've sort of said I, I, I think the notion of equity-like instrument investing in people is where you are helping project that person's life forward in some way, whether through education, entrepreneurial activity, or something. It's a form of financing that has variable payback, and that means it's higher risk, but higher reward relative to most debt sources of financing. So I think if you just sort of think of that metaphor and, and think of the various times in somebody's life where equity style financing, where there's a chance for the investor to lose most or all of their money, but at the same, at the same time have a chance to make a fairly outlandish reward if, if things go well, 
you know, that's, that's what this type of financing is like. And, and I think you could just sort of think through almost any life scenario. Anybody is, you know, needing capital and decide whether, you know, this is an appropriate, more appropriately a debt instrument or an equity like instrument. I think, well, first of all, on the five-year time frame, I mean, Dave, Five years is going to fly by, isn't it? Because I, I, I'm three years into Vimo, so it, maybe it's not five. Maybe we're we're talking double digit years. But I think the know-how and technology behind income share agreements. Once Vimo and, and others in the field have worked out all the bugs here, we're going to know how to link what people pay to the income they earn and verify the income. Report back granular data on what happened to them after they took the financing, and I think that can be applied where people maybe not even in, in what people think of as financial services today. If you think about how some services are priced, higher education is one of these where it's hard to know what it's worth. And it's hard to know why one college costs differently from another or why two people got different financial aid packages. I think if you look across our economy, you see healthcare and there are areas of healthcare where a successful outcome would actually help a person go back to their job and continue earning and an unsuccessful one would not. And uh, there may be other things like that, but I think there are broad categories of services in the United States where maybe globally where linking what people pay to the outcome would be helpful. And also the outcome should be successful employment or successful earnings afterward. And so that could scale in my view outside of education as easily as within it and could be bigger than all of the lending substitute uses of income share agreements. Can you give some examples outside of education use cases where you'd be most people experiment? I suppose a knee surgery for a person who does manual labor. And you would today look at your insurance company and look at local healthcare providers and the knee surgery might have four different prices at four different facilities and they could vary by some integer multiple from each other, the pricing, even though it's the exact same procedure with the exact same materials going in. And so you just have to start with this place of they can't all be the right price. Like, so it's priced really inefficiently. It's hard to tell what it's worth, but you know that if you get back to work, this is quantifiable and it's quantifiable for your insurance company and for your employer because they have to pay you unemployment insurance or something if you're unable to work. And I think that linking then the success of the procedure to the value, you know, what to like some measurement of it, you know, success equals value. And, and we measure that and the facilities paid based on how well they deliver that for you and your insurance or you and your local government would be really good for that industry. It would probably bring a different kind of pricing transparency and, and price and pricing discipline that isn't there. Another area that, was actually being explored when Tony and I were in this thing together years ago is professional athletes. You know, there's a lot of classes of athletes who have to toil a long time earning little to nothing with the hope of making it big. And, you know, that could be on the tennis circuit or it could be in one of the big team sports um, where you play in the minor leagues for a long time, et cetera, or just um, athletes that may be, you know, potential to get endorsements, but, there's just a lot of time up front where there's little to no income yet enormous amount of effort required. And, you know, athletes can have a lot of upside and downside in their careers based on injuries or what plays out or doesn't. And so that's a whole area that I know. In fact, we, we, for a while were, were working on a almost dedicated 
channel within Upstart focused on athletes. We had several that were aspiring Olympic athletes, et cetera. There was also at the time, I don't know if Tony remembers, a company, a company called uh, Fantex that was essentially like a stock market for, you know, for athletes' earnings and, and specifically professional football players is where they started. And uh, they may well still be around for all I know, but you know, it was a little bit of the income share agreement applied to a professional athlete and which had, you know, a lot of the same uh, challenges, but I think it just demonstrates there are other use cases that have some uh, uh, utility. In fact, I think uh, there are a lot of athletes that have contracts. They may not be in a, in a fancy company, but just contracts that essentially allow them to hedge their future earnings and against injuries, things like that, insurance policies that you know, over time begin to have a shade of income sharing uh, to them. And, and so I think there are actually some, some precedents for it. That makes sense. So Vimo is, um, you know, a really awesome wedge and, and, you know, I wish I'd invested in it early, but if I was to put my Peter Thiel hat on, he might say that it's not radical enough in that it, you know, still assumes higher education is the, is the default and or even the future of, of how we'll be educated. I guess, how would you sort of, respond to that or as you look at sort of the future of education and ISAs, like could you imagine people creating their own curriculums or their own mini, you know, institution like group curriculums or institutions and maybe even, you know, in high school in college or as soon as high school. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I I think the issues in higher education are so large in terms of misalignment of interests. Income share agreements are a start to try to align them, but there's so many fundamental flaws with the notion of every, every kid needs to go get a four-year degree, you know, because that's sort of the true signaling is, is a four-year degree, hopefully from the best possible college or university you can get into. And the, all the underpinnings of that are so flawed and so detrimental to our society where, you know, some of the very best things going on in this country are in community colleges where people are getting trained in actually useful ways and not spending four years and $200,000 on a degree that ultimately is not really helping shape their future. So I think, you know, the bigger problem is that in higher education is there needs to be this meltdown of the idea of if you don't go to a four-year college and if you don't go to the right four-year college, you're somehow not, you know, not the right person, not, uh, not the right stuff. <laughs> and, because it rarely probably is the right answer. There's some things that you need to go much longer, as we all well know, to much, takes, takes much more education than four years. And there's many things that would be well served by six months. So, I mean, it's exciting to see there are a lot of things like coding boot camps and things that are nibbling at the edges of this. And there are definitely some alternative types of, of universities that are propping up. But the credentialing system for universities, the accreditation system is really broken and it really prohibits you know, the thriving of competition in ways that would begin to be recognized. So, you know, ultimately it's, it is about jobs when the Googles of the world are hiring people that come out, come out with certain credentials that are not four year degrees, but you know, more specific ones and such. I think this will change, but I think that's what's at the heart of this is, is higher education has so many problems with it because it's a sort of one size fits all notion today, even though there are people biting around the edges Let's just face it, when your your kid is approaching the end of high school, you're sure like, you know, if you're like most of us, you think of really hoping that he or she will go to a good school. And uh, that's just the ticket. And it's viewed that way. And um, and somehow that needs to change. Tony, how would you respond to that? Well, not even to respond to Dave, but just to your question, because I, I don't think Dave's saying anything that isn't 
doesn't, doesn't make sense. You know at Vimo that you know, we've, we've cast our lot and we know who our, I'm going to talk to my book, you know, our customers are colleges and, and college alternatives who are using income share agreements. But we don't think that the status quo is the status quo forever. Uh, we think that colleges are pretty resilient. They're showing they can change their platforms that people believe in. The way Dave talks about like, hey, you know, you want your kid to go to a good school. We have to help the good schools stand out. We have to help them get better. And enough of them wants to get better that I think that they're going to get a chance to. So I, we don't contest. I would never contest that everything uh, right now works. I do think, though, that because our public believes so much in the institutions that are out there in higher ed today, public, private, nonprofit, both, and because we subsidize them so much because of the public good involved, I think they're going to be there as vehicles, you know, community colleges on up to, to deliver education. And while people innovate and outside of them frequently, I think that the most successful innovations are going to find a way to distribute through them. And that and there is more scale to that, believe it or not, you know, than the market for tuition is $500 billion a year. There are 19 million people in post-secondary ed in the United States at any given time. So it's a giant, giant market as is. And getting that market to work better, I think, is a really viable use of my time. It's, a, it's going to be a really viable thing for Vimo, even if we, some people would like to say, hey, these guys are dinosaurs, they should all die. I, I think what we're going to find is enough of them want to change and grow that, and improve that students in the future will be better served than they are today, even as some schools won't react well and won't handle it and will close. Right. It's interesting, going back to the point Dave was making about athletes, you know, sharing experience with athletes, that's been tried. Also, musicians sort of have ISAs, except it's just sort of the big hedge fund model in the sense that they give up, you know, 90% of their future income and have to pay, or some, you know, same half percentage and have to pay it all back first. I guess, why does, why don't ISAs exist for, for athletes or for musicians where the demand is there, the supply is there? Like what, what bottlenecks are holding, holding it back? maybe on the legal side or elsewhere. I think that people, you know, in, in reality, you don't know what's in the contracts of athletes around the world. There, there are elements within contracts or, or within the, the contract an artist might have with a record label, et cetera, that in effect have uh, elements of ISAs, right? Which is sharing the upside and protection on the downside. And so I, I think that without having a wholesale, you know, true blue ISA, a lot of the elements there actually are in contracts of varying types of contracts of employment or engagement with when you sign up a publisher, et cetera. So, so I actually think they are. It's just, as Tonio said originally, you know, very vanilla generic ISA, not totally clear who that's for and for what purpose. And I do think that if you said, okay, what do athletes really need? It may be something very different from an ISA. It would be more, more like a record label contract where it's, hey, we're going to provide you some money to be on the circuit and training and you'll have a good living wage and you'll do your thing. And then, you know, we're going to represent you when, and get X percent of your, you know, agent contracts generally making a percent of, of the athletes earnings in a year. So they do exist. They're just, they're not the wholesale kind of, you know, Milton Friedman style <laughs> income share agreement. Yeah. They're, they're linked to services, right? So I, I think, this concept is, is popular with professional athletes and entertainers because that's how people do business in agency. And that's how you def- figure out what an agent is worth, but they're linked to really valuable services 
that agents or publishers provide. Uh, similarly, I mean, it's not, it's dissimilar from what Vimo does for colleges in that colleges are about the average case and with some downside protection. And it's not about um, no college wants to change their identity and, you know, 10 X their revenue and enrollment the way that a uh, sports agent may, but 10 X is personal wealth and 10 X is client risk and everything else by succeeding with his clients. But in, in both cases, we're trying to value a thing that's hard to value and we're linking ISA-like uh, terms to services that are also valuable. And uh, taking the services out of the out of context, then you're competing with other. You're just competing to sell money. And I think that we think that'll unlock. And we think that I mean, I'm I'm ambiently aware of people trying that right now with athletes, but we have to. I, I, we haven't unlocked that yet, as Dave would say. Right. W- what doesn't yet exist is the crowdfunding element to it, or not at scale. Well, this goes to your marketplace solicitation. I, I should have commented earlier, you know, I think if your competency is going to be getting people to a website and parting, you know, giving you money, you got to find, you might as well sell them everything at that point. So whether it's, if it's securities or investments or if it's products or if it's something entertainment, if you have to do all the work to get people, retail people whose job is not buying your thing every day, like some institutional employee to your website, it's so hard to acquire that customer. You have to, you have to make the most of that and sell them everything possible. And I think, so crowdfunding itself is a competency as opposed to doubling down on crowdfunding with just for ISAs or ISAs with just for crowdfunding. ISAs are hard on their own right. And I think somebody who narrowed that down, maybe in a giant ISA market globally, that's a, a niche business. That seems like a really hard thing to me. And that's a Tonio opinion. I know some people succeed wildly at crowdfunding models. So you're saying that if someone you know, succeeds at building a Kickstarter for, for people as it relates to college or, or athletes, they might as well you know, create the entire platform for all types of ISAs. It seems to me that actually beyond that, that this is, if, it, if, if there were a Kickstarter for ISAs, I would expect that to be Kickstarter and that they would see that, boy, we have this huge audience, you know, we might make it 10 or 20% bigger enlarge our market by some number if we added ISAs because we don't have a way to back non-corporate projects today. You know, for example, like today, Kickstarter is largely a product marketplace, but they have a lot of people coming to their site and checking things out. But I, I, in ge- I guess generally what I'm saying is that if it's not backing things for entertainment or novelty, then it's, you know, for financial return. And if it's for, for financial return, you'd want to sell other investments, not just, exposure to the future earnings of people. Because I think what Tony was saying, and I agree with this, you know, crowdfunding is like a little industry itself and uh, it's all well and good, but in many ways it's a hobby compared to the main financial markets in the world. So to be honest, like if you're really interested in, from a financial perspective in investing in ISAs, look for somebody, I don't know, like Blackstone or something to have a 40 act fund or BlackRock to have a 40 act fund that you can put money into like a mutual fund. And that to me would be a sign that, wow, there's this huge thing and it has these kind of super awesome yield potential and, and it's regulated. And uh, so to me, like if, if it was, if it was real in terms of consumers investing, I mean, that's the obvious way to do it is through large financial institutions that create registered funds and have all, you know, the regulation that comes with that. Now, maybe there's a crowdfunding version of that, but again, um, like anything else, you can probably guess that that will be 
a hundredth the size of, of the big uh, right. the big Wall Street version. Tony, do you think this will be a institutions will will lead before retail investors in terms of investing in, in ISAs? And if so, what roadblocks need to be removed for institutions to be investing either in indexes of people or, or specific yeah, ISAs? We, so we institutions are investing in ISAs. I think that the in terms of investing, there's two ways to think about investing in ISAs today. One would be classically, are you going to literally back income share agreements or and are you going to try to handicap or, or underwrite what individual income share agreements are worth? That's not happening today in any institution. What institutions are doing is looking at colleges who need working capital or other kind of college alternatives who need working capital to fund ISA programs. And they're saying, hey, these colleges, on the one hand, can issue a tax-exempt bond against cafeteria, dormitory, or parking revenue. Here they have a tuition receivable. Somebody's going to pay them based on their success. They need some of that money up front. And an institution can look at that and look at cohorts of people across an institution that itself is a well-managed place with a good track record and decide that they're willing to fund it at some fair cost to the institution. It'll be a jump from that point. So we're using that, basically, Eric to build a performance history because what an institution will need to invest directly in income share agreements and not in the context of some relationship with an educational institution is performance history. Like what is it? They need to know what's that like. They need to see that something like Vimo can originate and service income share agreements really inexpensively and really, really efficiently with, you know, very few errors that the data we report back is sound that our underwriting models add up. And, um, you know, we need, as an industry, ISAs are in the guessing phase, I would say, of we hope this will work. Here's our best math. Here's our best effort at constructing all the frameworks for servicing and for income verification and reporting outcomes data. We, we need to move as an industry into the counting phase. And that's, a num- that's counted in months. Maybe it's 36 months. Maybe it's 60 months. Where we're counting what happened across cohorts of graduates from multiple institutions. And that, that just tells people a lot about what they can expect from the next cohort. And so institutions need to see that. They need to see those, those things. They also need scale. So no institution's going to get out of bed in the morning to pick a dollar off the floor or $2 or $10. They need to see the opportunity to deploy a lot of capital. And it is on Vimo and others in the space to earn that. I think the last piece that they'll need to see is, and that'll enable scale, is it will help to have really definite statutory or regulatory treatment for income share agreements. They just weren't completely contemplated by existing regulation. They're not illegal. Everything we're doing works for our school clients. But when you think about adding up all the costs of the capital, one of the costs is what if somebody makes a rule about this that isn't very good for us? And you can't know today with certainty that that will never happen. Whereas once the rules are written, everybody just prices that in and moves on with their lives. And so those are the things I think that would really help to see this thing scale. And Dave may have more to add based on his experience. I think that's right. I, I, I think regulatory clarity is important. And um, we spent some energy on that. And ultimately, you know, the road to success was far too long than a seed or a funded startup was going to be able to pursue. But I think being able to start in a little safer domain of, of higher education with, with their status is, is a very different place. So that's, that's a good place for Tony to own his company. Yeah. And is that what you see? Because some people think that the opportunities now that back when Upstart was starting, that there just wasn't a supply of investors, but with the Jobs Act, et cetera, you know, and investing being more common hobby that 
maybe culturally the tide has shifted and that people are down to invest in people. But when do you dispute that? And two, but do you still think yeah, the, big, the biggest roadblock is regulatory uncertainty? Well, you know, if you said like, what would it have taken for Upstart to be successful? I'm not entirely sure I could, of course, it's all sort of postulating. It's hard to exactly know. But if there was a single thing I could change that we spent enormous energy on that would have made, given us a chance and probably at least taken us to, I would guess, another order of magnitude of success was that we really needed non-accredited investors being able to participate. And we spent an enormous amount of time with the SEC, tried to sort of, in effect, recreate the approach that Prosper and Lending Club had done to allow non-accredited investors in to no avail. And it was no shortage of effort or desire. And our belief really was that somebody who was raising funds could actually bring family, friends, and neighbors, and whomever might want to put $100 toward this thing. And that actually had a chance. It was very Kickstarter-like in that way. We never got there. So we were always limited to accredited investors. And that is just a very much a much smaller fraction of the world and, and really sort of suppresses the network effect that you'd hoped for in what we were doing. So, you know, we, we really, I, in fact, I think the time we finally figured out that we were, we were going to pivot, we were moving away, was when it became pretty clear we were not going to get over that hurdle. We were not going to get to a point where non-accredited investors could come on the platform. And at that time, we decided to move. Yeah. Yeah, you know, people are you know thinking about different wedges. Earlier, you talked about the difference between financial investment and sort of social return. You're seeing a lot of these fellowships start to emerge. You know, Peter Thiel, twenty or twenty, but like Tyler, uh, Tyler Cowan, like a lot of people are just sort of starting these fellowships to identify young people, pioneer, etc. And then you see you know people who are doing things like Lambda School, who are saying, no, no, we're going to start with a, just a new like education alternative, and then create our own either create our own ISAs or use things like BMO, similar to what Make School Make School is doing. But it seems that people are approaching the problem in, in different ways. It'll be interesting to see who ends up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think ISAs ultimately are in the eye of the beholder. I mean, a certain person looks at them and says, wow, this is incredible. Look at the opportunity. It's helping these people unlock potential and, you know, just sees nothing but the positive in it. And then there's others that just say, yeah, it looks like, you know, indentured servitude with a smile. And that's just human nature. Some people think very optimistically about things that are different and untested and, and, and just sort of challenge some of our historical norms and other people just inherently find them repulsive. And I think that's one of the things ISAs have to get over. Thank you guys so much for both for coming on the podcast. Where can people learn more about Upstart Online or, or is there anything last that you want to plug? Well, we're at upstart.com, but we're all about loans now. Awesome. Cool. Thanks so much for, for coming to the podcast, uh, Dave Antonio. This has been a valuable contribution to the ISA literature on, online, and now we have a place to, uh, to point people to. Yep. Thanks, guys. Take care. Okay. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. If you're an early-stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.